you must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. Guts and Giallo, and today I'm joined by Sam Deegan. Hi, Sam. Hey, how are you? Good. And we're talking about the perfume of the lady in black. So before we talk about that, uh, Sam, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what what you're about? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm a writer and film critic. I spend most of my time doing like liner essays and recording commentaries for different Blu-ray labels. I mostly focus on cult movies, but I also do a lot of classic cinema. Um, I've written a book about Fritz Lang's 1931 film M. I edited a book on the work of Jean Rollin that was written by all women. And I have a couple of podcasts, uh, The Evil Eye, which is all about goth movies, which is, you know, sort of a made up theme, but we roll with it. It's so good, Uh, though. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And Daughters of Darkness, which is cult movie focused. And then I'm a regular guest host on The Projection Booth, which covers all kinds of movies. Amazing. And I highly encourage everybody to check out all of your work and your podcasts. I'm a big fan. I've been a big fan for a while. So it's really an honor to have you as a guest. Um, Well, I'm very excited to be here. So... Perfume of the Lady in Black. When did you first see this movie? And do you remember what you felt about it when you first saw it? So I want to say I first saw this probably a little bit. So Italian horror and Jello films were really my kind of gateway into being obsessed with movies. I mean, I started watching Fulci and Argeno when I was like 13 or 14. And I want to say I managed to track this down a couple years later. Like this was pretty hard to find for a while. It was one of those titles that just didn't really have a home video release, at least not one that I found. But watching Mimsy Farmer in Argeno's Four Flies on Grey Velvet, I just thought, who is this woman like she's so and i'm sure we'll talk about this but she's so kind of atypical compared to 95 percent of the actresses cast in jalo films 
And I just needed to know, had she done more movies? Who was she? And so I, I found a, a couple of other titles, including Autopsy, which is one of my favorites of all time. But I, when I saw this, I just fell instantly in love with it because it, it is one of my favorite subgenres, which is women going insane and is it supernatural? Is someone driving them to it? That sort of like very loose subgenre. Like I just, it's my favorite probably. I love it too. And this movie is mentioned a few times in the book House of Psychotic Women uh, by Kira Janice, which is all about (laughs) movies about women going crazy. Uh, And I I just have to quote my roommate, Liv, who says that her religion is women driven to madness by the cruelty of the world. (laughs) And that is definitely part of this movie. And I also love movies about like secret satanic cults. And what I love about this, too, is it's like a giallo Rosemary's Baby kind of. And Mimsy Farmer is like, right, is like a kind of a giallo Mia Farrow, like just so kind of androgynous and diminutive. Um, But it's just it's got that freaky Italian spin on all of it. So... And we chose this movie, right? We talked a little bit about it because we're also isolated and quarantined right now. And she is alone so much in this movie and kind of just going nuts in that loneliness. So it felt appropriate. Yeah, I feel like if you, in this current quarantine, if you did a Crazy Women Alone film festival of of like this uh robert altman's images Mm -hmm. symptoms let's scare jessica to death repulsion by the end you would just be insane yeah that's try this at home (laughs) yeah don't try this at home i've definitely been doing that at home but you know (laughs) if you're if you're advanced watcher of crazy making movies then maybe you're safe um okay so 1974 right directed by francesco barilli i don't know a lot about him and i was wondering if you did if if you knew some it was hard for me to find information yeah he's one of those directors who really i think gets passed over I mean, that that happens to a lot of people who aren't Argeno or Fulci. I think just because some of those more obscure titles were hard to get a hold of for so long. But Barilli also, I think, doesn't get a ton of attention because he didn't make a whole lot of films. He He worked on some things as a screenwriter, but... He's mostly known for a very small handful of films. This is the most famous. And then the other one he made, which I love, is called Pensioni Para, which is Hotel Fear, which it's the dumbest title in English. But it's a loosely similar story of this girl who's kind of trapped in a hotel that her family owns in the year. It's supposed to take place at some point after World War II, but it's much more blatantly a giallo film. 
And it has a lot of crossover with perfume in the sense that it's this woman who seems to be going insane and there's some sort of past trauma related to uh, dead or missing parents. And all the male characters are fucking terrible and try to prey on her. And there is a similar, I don't want to say similar because I don't want people to think that like, that's also a kind of secret cult movie, but there, there's also a series of twists or things that happen that you're just like, what the fuck is going on here? So I think tonally they're similar, even if the, this is much more sort of ornate and beautiful and Gothic. And that's a little bit seedier, but I wish he made more films because these two are just incredible. Yeah, I would love to to see that one. They're, yeah, his films are hard to get a hold of. This is this is hard to get a hold of. This film, you kind of have to like buy the Blu-ray or have a, yeah. a torrent or something. Um, so that's something to keep in mind for listeners. But- yeah, I think actually right now you can rent it for like a dollar on amazon oh really okay cool yeah new because for a long time you had to have a torrent or a bootleg and then raro put it out on blu-ray and if you're somebody who prefers physical media raro are constantly i don't know how they do it but it seems like they have a sale every single week and they have a lot of more obscure Italian horror movies, but also Italian art house films, like lots of kind of neglected Pasolini films and Italian crime movies and stuff like that. So if you're bored and you want to buy things. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to do that right now. What, how do you spell Raro? R-A-R-O. Cool. Great. So I'll link that for everybody in the show notes because I'm a big advocate of actually buying Blu- yeah, Blu-ray l- releases for these rare movies. So, um, do you in, do you consider this film a giallo film? I I wonder. No. So I am one of those assholes who when Suspiria when the Suspiria remake came out and everyone was like oh referring to Suspiria as a giallo I was one of those people who just hated their life and couldn't look (laughs) you're a purist (laughs) well because giallo is a very specific subgenre and I think there's a tendency to say that any Italian horror film made in the 70s or 80s is a giallo and that's just not the case I mean it would be like saying, you know, any detective movie is film noir. Like film noir is a specific thing. And so I think it it has some crossover because there are murders, but there's not like for me, most Jalo films tend to follow this sort of formula where there's a series of killings that proceed in some sort of very specific stylistic fashion. And that's not what happens here. It's right. Much more about her madness. Right. And there's usually like a masked killer 
and yeah it's, it's the same thing with something like all the colors of the dark which is referred to as a giallo and does have some of those elements but i don't think i think they're both gothic horror i don't really think either right. of them are giallo. yeah they're gothic horror giallo-esque gothic horror like yeah yeah no i uh, all the colors of the dark is another movie that i love and is very similar to this oh, one wow. in a lot of ways yeah it's like it's almost like if two directors were given bullet points with some themes and so you know it's the woman going insane and secret cult and then they just made two wildly different films right they make a good double feature they do make a good double feature and uh edwidge fennec stars in all the colors of the dark yes. oh my god like i can barely look at her because she's so beautiful like i remember i was watching all the colors of the dark and there's just this gorgeous close-up of her and i was just like i'm gay i'm gay like that's like she's so beautiful she really is and interest it's an interesting comparison between her and Mimsy Farmer I wanted to talk <laughs> about a little bit. Well, Mimsy Farmer is an American actress uh, and she's an also an artist and a sculptor. And her nickname came from a line in Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky, which is all Mimsy were the Borogoves, which is interesting considering there's a lot of Alice in Wonderland references and themes in this film. Yeah, it's it's funny that you bring this up because this Australian film museum, basically uh, film center, film museum did this exhibit about Alice in Wonderland inspired films. And for the exhibit, they had a book created and I contributed to the book and I wrote an essay about perfume of the lady in black as an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. Amazing. Like now that since I worked on that essay, I can't, stop seeing all the Alice references which I don't think I had noticed as much before but it really is like I I love that that's where her nickname came from it's it's just like fate it's so perfect and she is a very like you were saying a very kind of atypical Italian star even she's not a- Italian but was in so many Italian movies a, a very atypical Italian starlet what do you like when you think of an Italian starlet from this era what do you usually think of I mean for me it's people like Edwidge Fennec who you mentioned and Anita Strindberg who also is I believe Swedish she's not Italian either um Rosalba Neri who is my my queen um they're all very very feminine and made to look very glamorous. They all have this sort of giant, beautiful hair. They wear a fair amount of makeup. They're usually dressed in either almost no clothes, like Rosalba Neri often is, or they're a very sort of like 70s kind of glamour type outfits because the style is so important to giallo films. Whereas whenever Mimsy is cast in these Italian movies and 
you know, I, I know we mentioned this briefly earlier, but she's she's in Argeno's Four Flies on Grey Velvet. She's in Autopsy, which is amazing for those of you who have not seen it. And this film, and in all of them, she wears no obvious makeup. She has short hair that doesn't seem to have a particular style. And, like, in this, she wears some interesting dresses, but none of them, like, whenever somebody like Fennec or Neri are costumed, it's meant to emphasize how sort of lush and beautiful and kind of curvaceous they all are. But with her, the, the wardrobe choice is almost, like, prim. Or it, it's at least meant to, like... You, you don't see any cleavage. Like, do you kind of know what I mean? It's just Absolutely. very... Yeah. It remind it does remind me a lot of Rosemary's Baby because she similarly is put in these kind of 60s housewife dresses where I wouldn't say that her wardrobe is masculine in any way because I, I don't think that's the case. It just... It's not meant to sexualize her, I don't think. Right. And it's, like you said, very kind of... Well, in in this film, she's either very androgynous or kind of like a little girl. Like her... Like dress at the end. The dress at the end. Yeah, the very, like, Alice in Wonderlandish kind of dress she has on at the end. And she wears, like, very muted colors, a lot of neutrals, like, pale yellows. And she's kind of always, because she has that pale hair, she's always kind of washed out a little bit and just yeah. seems very... It, yeah, it's just a very different vibe. And I also, when I think of Italian starlets, I I usually think of brunettes. I don't think of blondes, yeah. which is very unique. It is. And I think this idea of sort of blondes in Italian film, I mean, you have people like Anita Ekberg in Fellini and Anita Strindberg, who I mentioned, and they're all sort of foreign models. I mean, I think within Italian film from this period, and especially Italian cult film, you get actresses from all over. And a lot of the time that's emphasized in the plot as being sort of a, a point of exoticism. Like, it's sort of one of their kind of mysterious qualities is they all have accents and they're supposed to be all glamorous. But her like that's never the case with her characters like she's the sort of the total opposite of everything we've been talking about yeah and i'm also thinking of autopsy which i believe is free on amazon right now so people should go watch it yeah and just like how she she has these roles where she has very atypical careers Uh, in both films yes yeah scientist and she has the most fucking terrible boyfriend in actually I would say in all three of her major Italian films her partners are just awful like you hate them and in this film I think he's the worst because he's always like what are you trying to win some sort of Nobel Prize oh my god I hate him he's like we have to go play tennis tonight you can't you can't do science yeah (laughs) yeah I can't wait to hate on him. In the, in our, yeah, he sucks. The other thing I wanted to mention was the music is by Nicola Piovani. I just love the music in this film so much. 
so good. It's definitely, I think, between the really incredible visuals and the score, it's just such a rich film. It's I can't say enough good things about that score. And it it jumps around. I think bands like Goblin when they would score Jalo films would do a pretty consistent like a couple of different themes but in general would be very sort of similar musically whereas this sort of jumps around with her moods and the score starts to change when the her child Sylvia is introduced and so it's like as she gets you know more and more off her rocker the music kind of reflects that in a way that i love yes it gets so much more intense and there's these like strings also kind of i don't know if you agree with this but kind of atypical for italian horror at this time like i feel like there's not a lot of strings yeah there so there are people who do rely on that like Bruno Nicolai would sometimes mix it up between electronic and strings but when he would it it's sort of more traditional kind of orchestra type stuff that's meant to be sort of somber or menacing but here I'm pretty sure he uses in addition to the strings I'm pretty sure he uses a waterphone which is my most favorite horror movie soundtrack instrument ever because it just sounds like someone's coming to murder you. Yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It's, yeah, it's so beautiful and creepy. And the DP is Mario Massini, who uh, is still working today. So made, made a, did a DP to 900. film. 900. <laughs> yeah. yeah made, made a DP to film in 2018. So that's pretty cool because a lot of these folks yeah. are not working anymore. So now that we've given some background, let's talk about the plot of the perfume of the lady it's a wild Black. ride this wild <laughs> ride yeah so we open uh you know kind of reflecting back on it now that now that i'm kind of thinking about how we open with this child swimming in a fountain we're kind of immediately brought into a world of childlike play um and I just th- I thought that was interesting on this rewatch. And we see this older man watering plants on his balcony. And this is when we camera kind of pans over. And this is where we meet Mimsy Farmer, who uh, is a, is waves from to, to him from her apartment next door. She plays Sylvia Hackerman. Um, and she's in this like yellowish khaki outfit. And we see her, we finally see her apartment, which it's like as somebody who's obsessed with 70s and 80s interior design, it's, is, so, good. it's so good. And it's just wild. Like none of it makes sense. That's another thing about this movie is like, I never quite know where we are, like who's like, we're, we're in her apartment but it's the layout of it I can never get quite right, like, which I, I imagine is on purpose. Um, and w- we see also that she's an industrial scientist. So she goes to work. She's in charge of a lot of men. And I was wondering what you think about the choice of her being a scientist in this film. It's so strange because I I think that the Jalo films 
often kind of, and this also applies to some gothic horror, but they often tend to have female characters who don't have jobs. Right. Like they're sort of the, the sort of daughters of businessmen. So they, you know, have money, they don't have to work or they're somebody's wife. A lot of the time they're models. Some every once in a while, they have a job like in deep red. Daria Nicolodi's character is, is a reporter. But so it just strikes me as so weird that she's cast as a scientist in not only one, but two films. Right. As we were saying earlier, she's also a scientist in autopsy. And in a way, and, and so you have to consider, like, I'm not somebody who jumps on the Italian horror or Jalo films or misogynist, and therefore they're terrible bandwagon, because I feel like that's reductive and super not reductive. Yeah. yeah, super reductive. And I think it also comes from a place of not understanding what life was like in Italy in the 70s. Mm. But with that said, it was not an especially permissive place for women. I mean, it took them forever to be able to get a divorce or open their own bank account without some sort of male sponsorship. So I think having a character who not only has a job, but has a traditionally masculine job and is then put in a position of authority and is somebody who places their career above marriage or children. I think it's a way of intentionally masculine, like making the character sort of more masculine or at best androgynous and also a way of saying this is not a traditional Italian woman. Mm. Like I don't think an Italian actress would necessarily have been cast in that role. So I think it is important that she's visibly a foreigner. Right. Yeah, definitely. Her character's name is also not Italian. Right, right. Sylvia Hackerman. Yeah. She's just a kind of outsider. Right. Yeah. Every choice they made is a way to say this is not a normal woman. Right. And maybe this is too deep to get into just yet in the plot, but do you find that to be misogynist? Like that othering of her? I think that othering is really important right out of the gate to establish this tone that she's different and that she's not quite of the world. Like there is this very sort of strange otherworldly quality to her, which I think makes it a little bit more interesting to me than something. So I'm a big fan of Polanski's films, but Rosemary's Baby I find frustrating because I hate the character of Rosemary. She's just so sort of helpless, and Mm -hmm. she is a very very traditional kind of woman who wants to make her husband happy and doesn't seem to have any goals outside of that. So I think Sylvia is such an important contrast because she is not like that. And I think it's also a little bit more believable when some of the crazy things start to happen because she's already so out of the world. Right. If I think it's intentionally misogynistic, I mean, I think there are some historical cultural things that we would definitely consider misogynistic now, but I I don't think that it's intentionally directed at her character that way. 
Mm. Yeah, I didn't feel like that about about it either. Um, But it's something that we always have to kind of consider when a woman is being portrayed as like crazy and you know sure it for for being this uh career woman at the same time though i really feel like and we'll get into this i feel like roberto is the obvious villain who is the one who is down on her about her career uh which it's in my mind would negate that it being a misogynist choice um totally that's also how i see it i mean if you think about something like deep red where there's a male character who is definitely posited as the protagonist that we're supposed to associate with the his love interest is a journalist she's a professional woman with a career and he acts like she's a ridiculous moron with a hobby and you know we come around to realize like maybe he's a little bit of an idiot and she sort of helps save the she rescues him at one point so i think it sort of levels out but it's such a different relationship than that one because the boyfriend is terrible from the moment you meet him you're like i just what i want to decapitate him when is he gonna die right usually what i think when characters like that show up and i think that's intentional totally so she uh, the next thing she does in her day is she goes to a grave site to lay flowers at her mother's grave and this is when we start to see these signs of her psychosis like she gets this sudden headache and she starts to hear these voices like in the wind and the trees so we're kind of getting set up for that to be a theme here uh back in her stylish home in this very cool robe she has on her i love everybody in her apartment building seems to be wearing these fantastic dressing gowns i love it like can that be my life i know you can now you right. have to get dressed down. Yeah. i know i want that it's like this really strange like 70s blue robe with like these like geometric shapes on it and her neighbor mr rosetti comes by to like creepily ask her for some tea and i feel like immediately as a woman watching this i think i'm on high alert of this guy being a creep uh and just like making an excuse to come over and Sylvia so we were introduced to Mr. Rossetti so now Sylvia is having a chat with uh, over whiskey with some friends and among them is her boyfriend Roberto played by Maurizio Buniglia and a professor named Andy played by Joe Jenkins and he is an African professor and he is um, and there are two other people there I forget their names but they're also African professors and he starts to tell uh, Sylvia about the mysterious occurrences of black magic that he says haunt every corner of Africa 
And after talking about these cults that murder and prey on unsuspecting victims, which like, you know, harbinger foreshadowing, uh, by driving them mad with magic potions and evil spells, he kind of breaks into this like crazy boisterous laugh and says that he was just pulling all their pulling their legs. So, and Sylvia is transfixed by these claims. So the other thing I wanted to talk about in regards to this scene was the the kind of exoticism at play here. Um, and I also was wondering what you make of the character of Andy. Yeah, this plot element is so complicated because it comes across as being pretty racist. Yeah. And like the exoticism is pretty tasteless in a way that I think is not surprising from a 70s film, especially one made in Italy. Yeah, especially Italian. Yeah. Yeah. Just it's such a weird plot device because at first you have to think like like with the first time you see the film, you think, what does this mean? Why are we being told this? And I do think it's pretty common in these women going bananas movies to bring up some reference to the supernatural or the occult, because usually what the director and screenwriter are trying to do is they're trying to say, okay, is it ghosts? Is it magic? Is it some supernatural force? Or, or are you just insane? And this movie does sort of a weird thing where you start to think, okay, is some sort of African occultism involved in what's happening to her? Is it just sort of like a colorful side reference and it doesn't become clear really until the ending but even then it's like why is it african right that's what it's like no matter how many times i've seen this film i'm like why africa i mean like, it I, doesn't it, have to do with anything else right i mean it's it seems purely because it's an exoticism thing and like a you know yeah. like a mystical othering um you know and the character of andy is so interesting to me and i feel like I, I, I mean, especially when we get to this, the tennis scene with him, um, just yeah, it's so weird. It, it's sort of one of my favorite things about a lot of these women going crazy films is there's this very claustrophobic sense that people around the female protagonist are either out to get her or they're all creeps or they're in some way kind of hostile or antagonistic or threatening. And so it's pretty in keeping with that. But at the same time, you get this sense that like maybe he's put a spell on her or has drugged her or done something to her. And it just seems so weird that that's the character that you would be suspicious of. Like it just think it's a little messy yeah it's quite messy and i mean i think as the movie goes on i think it becomes clearer who the actual villains of the movie are but yeah it definitely sets it up in the beginning for you to feel like this is the 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 villain um so roberto drives her back to her apartment and they kind of like canoodle in the car as one of uh, sylvia's female neighbors watches from a balcony 
Do you what is do you know that actress's name off the top of your head? I didn't write it down. I actually don't. Let me see if I have it in my notes here. I don't. That's okay. Um she just has such a striking face. And she's watching them from the balcony. And this is the first time where Roberto chastises Sylvia for being so preoccupied with her work and not taking enough time for him. And he says, it's not like you'll win the Nobel prize or anything. What a dick. Just, yeah. I just want to fucking punch him in the face. Like it's so, and that's also when I was like, okay, he's clearly the villain here too. Like there's sometimes in, in these Italian seventies films where a man says something like that and it's not positioned as him being wrong. But I feel like in this scene, you're clearly on Sylvia's side here. Cause we've been with her from the beginning yeah, and we just immediately empathize with her. Well, and what I think is so interesting is that often throughout many different kinds of films, when we're shown a, a woman in a you know stereotypically masculine industry who's in a position of power and is very dedicated to her work, they're usually shown to be kind of aggressive or bitchy or ambitious in a way that's really meant to be unappealing and sylvia is definitely not any of those things like the movie really sides with her and i think sympathizes or maybe sympathizes is the wrong word but doesn't make it clear that it's bad that she's so into her work like it's it's shown to be kind of a positive trait totally yeah which is uncommon so yeah She's just a child throwing a tantrum, basically. Like, you're not paying enough attention to me. What about my needs? Right, right. And she kind of, like, disregards it and goes inside. And the next day, it's not a good sign that Sylvia sleeps in until 3.30 in the afternoon. Uh, She misses her shift at her job uh, that she's really dedicated to. And she's woken up by Carlotta, who uh, I imagine is one of the landlords of this building, it seems like. I think so. Or like a building manager. Right. Something along. There's this kind of great like film noir-esque lighting also in this scene with the the shades, the shadow of the shades on her face. It's so beautiful. And Sylvia uh, accidentally broke this picture frame that, uh, is it a picture of her father that's in the frame? And yeah, right. She brings it to be repaired. Yeah. And, and and loses her mind when she can't get it back. Right. Yes. So this is kind of immediately like there's a lot of, um, to put it lightly, family issues in this film. And <laughs> yeah, we we know that her mother is dead. We know that from the cemetery scene. And now we kind of assume her father is also dead or, you know, not in the picture. So she's really alone in the world. And she she goes to the frame store to get this her picture frame repaired. And we see now this strange man outside who kind of eyes her. So somebody's like watching her. 
So Sylvia meets up with her friend Francesca. Uh, what do you make of Francesca in this film? Francesca is an interesting... So earlier I was saying that I think most of the side characters in these sorts of unhinged women films are often threatening or predatory in some way. And I think Francesca is one of those characters who seems to be a friend, but doesn't always seem to like, sometimes it feels like she's laughing. She's sort of like subtly laughing at Sylvia. Right. Or think Sylvia in some way is kind of inept or, you know, ridiculous well she's and she's like a more stereotypically feminine than sylvia and she like encourages her to spend less time working and to spend more time with roberto and to get dressed up and right right and they wander into this kind of strange taxidermy taxidermy store to buy a butterfly for roberto who collects them and I was also thinking about the significance of the butterfly and yeah, I don't know. Do you think that that is, do, do you think that that is in any way symbolic of anything? Cause when I think of the butterfly, I think of like a metamorphosis of, of changing and I don't particularly see that as a theme in this film. Yeah. It's, it's weird because First of all, it doesn't seem like a very masculine gift. Right. And it doesn't seem like a stereotypically masculine thing to collect preserved butterflies. But to me, it's sort of part of this bigger visual theme that once I noticed it, I now cannot unsee it. But I think one way that the film really ties to Alice in Wonderland is it has this insane use of nature but the nature is very kind of artificial so you have all of these shots of her outside in these sort of manicured lawns and gardens and cemeteries but you also have her in all of these different environments where they're either paintings of flowers or flower wallpaper or just like all kinds of little details like that. And throughout the film, there's also a lot of taxidermy and preserved animals. And so I think it was just sort of maybe a more delicate way to have her get a romantic present Mm -hmm. and, but still like give her a reason to sort of non grotesque reason to go in this taxidermy shop, which winds up becoming important visually right so more about getting her into the shop than it is about the butterfly in particular interesting yeah yeah i see that so this also there's this strange man who watches her from behind a curtain in the store creeps in this movie (laughs) there's a lot of creeps in this movie and i mean it also gets me thinking about like being an a quote unquote like independent woman who moves through the world alone and that kind of fear of being watched and followed <laughs> and how this kind of like confirms that paranoia um yeah which i think is why is part of why it feels not misogynistic to me because she is this really independent character 
And the movie doesn't seem to judge her for that. It's sort of why she unravels is not because she wants to be alone, but because she's dealing with this unresolved trauma. And I think the movie is saying that she's right to be on her guard because there are a lot of awful people in the world, which is sort of the theme at the end of the movie. (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. It like that the end of the movie really kind of in a sick way kind of redeems her fears of being paranoid. Um, so for real for real yeah so she goes to roberto's home to give him this gift and he also has all these african masks on his walls so kind of going back to that exoticism uh so roberto he is a he's a doctor right and he like an anthropologist okay he's an anthropologist and he that's how he knows Andy is from traveling to Africa. Um, and yeah, it's uh, that's that's important that he is he's got all these masks. Uh, he feels like a closeness to that spirituality. So he, Roberto seems not to be there. Sylvia feels this eerie presence. Something is very off, and she hears these strange noises, which we then see when she looks in the mirror is a woman in a black polka dot dress spraying herself with a perfume atomizer. Uh, and this is the first time we see the the perfume of the lady in black and she's looking directly at sylvia from from behind the looking glass and this is kind of when we first start to get these themes of like alice in wonderland going into the looking glass um and yeah did you have anything you want to say about the first time we see the lady in black I mean, I just think it's so well done because the, the movie also, I think, does a lot to throw you off the track. So it's the first time you watch this, I think it's very hard to get your bearings and you're not sure what subgenre is this, what kind of plot can we expect? Because, you know, most genre films follow some sort of standard plot. And. I just love that within sort of that 10 minute window, it sort of first suggested that maybe this like witch doctor type figure is targeting her in some way or has maybe poisoned her. And then in this scene, you start to think, okay, maybe is this a, a some sort of like supernatural like haunting movie? Is Is her mother a ghost? And I just love the way it ties together some of those visual themes like water, glass, mirrors, reflections are all so important in this film. And if you go back and watch it, it's sort of like the hinge is when she breaks the glass on her father's picture. And it's sort of like everything kind of becomes unraveled from there. Mm. Like, like she's sort of broken a gateway to some sort of supernatural contact or in her own mind. And I, I love that the film takes so long to answer what the fuck is going on. Yes, me too. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, so this is her, you know, we kind of assume this woman in the mirror is her mother. Um, 
Yeah, and I think it sort of confirms that later on because you see these kind of flashback memory type sequences where the same actress is playing someone we're told is her mother. But it also goes so against sort of maternal stereotype her mother is pretty terrifying for most of the movie and it's not like oh i see my mother's ghost i missed her it's her mother's ghost is seems to be terrorizing her right yeah and there's a lot happening with the women in this film right and she's not a particularly maternal figure like she's very sensual um which is important because we're we're soon going to get into Sylvia's memory of her. Uh, Roberto scares Sylvia. He walks in the room. And this is when you start to notice that something's kind of off about Roberto, in my opinion, because the way he kind of enters the room, like knowing already what's happening, like the look on his face and he's kind of smiling, like he's taking joy yeah. in her fear. Uh, and he doesn't believe her because, you know, she says, I saw this woman in the mirror. He obviously doesn't believe her. And then they have sex. And the worst sex, the worst sex ever. It looks, it looks awful. Like- <laughs> she just looks exhausted and like not in a good way. And he. No, and yeah. And he's, it looks like he's having some sort of fit. Yeah. <laughs> just like pounding away <laughs> and Sylvia after after this terrible sex which has this kind of clo- this close up of Sylvia where she's just like kind of over it it looks like uh, yeah she it's pa- pretty creepy. It's pretty creepy, yeah. She passes by a storefront, and she's preoccupied by this vase, this pink vase with flowers on it. So again, more nature, like you were saying, uh, that more artificial nature. And it triggers a memory of uh, her mother being have violently fucked just to put it bluntly by a man who stares into sylvia's eyes which are now our eyes because this is a pov shot of this memory um make it more (laughs) yeah right and i mean immediately i just thought of PTSD like Sylvia is clearly suffering from that just the way that she has a that flashback and that's a huge theme in this movie is trauma Uh, and it kind of drives the rest of Sylvia's actions I feel like yeah that's what's so fascinating to me about giallo films and these sort of later 70s italian gothic movies is so many of them are concerned with this issue this issue of unresolved trauma like if you think about a lot of the sort of bigger giallo films and i in case people haven't seen a lot of them i don't want to name films because it will give away the entire thing but (laughs) There are a number of films where there's a female killer or a woman who is at the center of the plot and might be a killer who is often resolved to have some sort of past trauma. I mean, even something like All the Colors of the Dark, there's this issue of 
memories with her mother that that she's not quite clearly remembering but is traumatized by and it's like any t- in these movies anytime there's a present trauma it seems to awaken this past trauma and set off this chain of violent events and it's just so interesting to me that you know i think people who haven't seen a lot of these films assume that they're like slasher movies where there's some sort of there's always a male killer preying on women but in these films a lot of the time it's way more complicated that than that and the victims are both men and women the killers are both men and women but it always seems to relate back to this idea of past trauma right like that 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 is sort of the key to why this violence is occurring yeah and here i think it's so well done because it's sort of woven together just this idea of her shattering the picture of her father and then seeing her mother's ghost and as you pointed out i think it's so important that the flashback of her mother's rape and murder comes right after she herself has had sex it's like it makes it clear that you're expected to associate both of those things within sylvia herself and i think that's also why sex and sexuality and femininity are so complicated in this film because they're so complicated for that character yeah it's like childhood trauma is to me such a fascinating subject in cult movies because i think it deals with things in such a creative way like rather than more straightforward drama films where it's like you know now i'm a drug addict and my life is ruined it it just you know instead she starts to see child sylvia follow her around like some sort of crazy poltergeist yeah i think that's really that's very well said and it's the, the idea of the sex like triggering this trauma memory. And I was also, I mean, I was also wondering like, do, is her mother having sex in this memory or is she being raped? Cause you refer to it as a rape. Yeah. That was always my assumption because there's in at least one of the scenes and one of the scenes at the end of the film, you see blood running down from the side of her mouth and it looks like she's dead. So it, it definitely is extremely violent and not that you can't have violent or rough consensual sex. I think I just assumed it was a rape because she died. She ultimately seems to be dead. Although Sylvia's memories and what we're sort of told about Sylvia's past from other characters later makes it pretty clear that she is an unreliable protagonist in some ways. So it's sort of hard to say. Yeah. I think maybe, I think actually, now that I'm saying this out loud, I think the important point here is not whether it was consensual sex or not, it's Sylvia's perception that something violent has occurred. Absolutely. And it that's exactly what I was thinking. And it kind of, it recalls how 
you know, like the the whole primal scene thing of like walking in on your parents having sex and a lot of kids think that the their father is hurting their mother and uh, when they don't understand what sex is and how that stayed with her, even though it might have been a consensual encounter, to her it seemed violent yeah. and scary. And that stayed with her and causes this kind of arrested development that she's experiencing. Definitely. And I think it, everything is sort of complicated by the fact that she runs into her mother's former partner at the end of the film and he he basically tells her that her mother kept him from molesting Sylvia. Mm, yep. She says, you know, your, your mother kept me off of you or, or something, something right. like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's and definitely so, a creep. He sure is. Yeah. I yep. mean, he also says this to her probably 30 seconds before trying to rape her. So right. it's, yeah. So that was, obviously- had a fun time yeah yeah i mean major content warning on everything we talk about in this podcast in general but yeah in this movie for sure um so she now plays tennis with andy francesca and roberto and francesca and roberto go off to have some kind of conversation and sylvia is alone with andy and she's about to do a volley around with him and she cuts her hand on a nail that's sticking out of the tennis racket and andy goes to tend to it but instead of helping her wound he gently sucks the blood in her hand and the music is great and this is like one of those things where i'm like maybe i'm just a pervert but this is very sexual and the way he stares into her eyes like the man from the memory um just it's all so much sexual tension here yeah and it's it's interesting that if you follow the events where andy is concerned it's sort of like the night that they have that conversation and they have drinks and they talk about sort of african occultism that's when it seems like maybe she's been drugged because after that is when she sleeps for so long and here a lot is made by the camera of her cutting her hand and it does seem like this weird sort of seduction, but I agree that the scene of him sucking the blood off her hand is a thousand times more erotic than her boyfriend banging away. Yep. Like, yeah. No, it's yeah. And I mean that, that, I mean, Joe Jenkins is also very attractive. So it's more than her boyfriend. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So she kind of backs away horrified and looks out into the field and this is when she first sees child Sylvia and she's like spinning in circles she starts to talk about herself in the third person where she says Sylvia's hurt herself and this trigger that she had earlier this trauma memory has triggered this inner child response which is actually quite a sophisticated understanding of trauma It really is. And that's what I find so amazing about some of these films is Mm -hmm. like, yes, you can wring your hands about how they're violent and people are being murdered and there's nudity. 
but I think that's just such a superficial way to see some of these. And I mean, I think all of those things are great. But Me too. I'm like, what's the problem? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you wouldn't have this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but underneath that, I think those sort of superficial genre elements prevent people sometimes from seeing how kind of intelligent some of these films are at dealing with serious issues and I always find it so fascinating that it's like you know this forgotten Italian genre film really makes an effort to understand how childhood trauma is connected to an adult's concept of sexuality and those two things are entwined absolutely and it, it's I think just so well done that it's after those either sex scenes or scenes that awaken some sort of desire in her that the trauma comes back like to the surface yes yeah like she must have been turned on by that blood sucking scene otherwise child sylvia wouldn't have shown up hello that's what i'm saying <laughs> like she you know every time yeah every time she feels desire and then i'm also kind of thinking of um hitchcock as like an early precursor to these and marnie and um love marnie, love marnie. it's my favorite hitchcock film and Sylvia is kind of like an, like an icy blonde, right? An icy Hitchcock blonde. And we also have a lot of yeah. noir lighting. And just the way that, yeah, the, the way that sexuality is pathologized in those movies in kind of a way that reminds me of this. And also just the way that, I mean, just in, like, as somebody who does trauma therapy, like, for in my personal life, that is something that you are told to do is talk to your inner child and comfort your inner child. And I just find that to be very fascinating that this was in this film, even in 1974. Um, yeah. It's- yeah, definitely. He deals with some of those themes before they were popularized because drama therapy is a more recent thing exactly yeah so it's just i mean i think this is also sort of one of the reasons why i'm drawn to this type of art because i think it it can help sort of it can help you confront some of those issues within yourself or find some sort of channel for it in a way that doesn't feel preachy or pedantic or like the movie's not telling you if you've been traumatized, you need to confront your inner child, but it sort of shows you the result of someone not dealing with trauma and repressing it. Yes. Yeah. And this is like also another reason, you know, not to be on my high horse about like why I usually prefer older movies because I do feel like a lot of modern horror can be very, very preachy. (laughs) And And I find it so frustrating. 
Yeah, it is really frustrating. So now back at home, Sylvia talks to Roberto on the phone and she tells him that Andy and Francesca went out on a what we kind of imagine is a date. And um, that I also found interesting because there is a fair amount of exoticism in this movie. And like just to warn people, there is quite a bit of racism in 70s European cinema. And in this, like there is in this movie as well, but the proposed romantic relationship between Francesca and Andy is like completely neutral, which is very uncommon. Like when there is an yep. interracial relationship in European movies from this time, a, a lot is made out of it. And in this, it's kind of just, yeah, they went out, which I felt was also interesting. Um, so just a, just a side note with that. Uh, yeah, and I, I do think that this movie, I don't want to say it sort of bucks the stereotype, but it's much more complicated than saying, oh, it's misogynist or oh, it's racist. And so I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about some of those more kind of complicated things because I think they're so important to point out to people that like... Yes, it was obviously made in the 70s, but it doesn't have to be this sort of reductive thing where you shouldn't watch it because it's insensitive. It's like it's weirdly very sensitive in certain ways. Totally. And also, like, how are you going to I mean, I don't know. I just think it's important to be educated about things that have come before so you don't repeat them. And also in... I mean, there's another interesting part of this in that the scene before when Andy and Roberto and Sylvia were talking about the black magic, um, Andy calls out Roberto for being kind of a colonizer. Like he says, there's no way you could possibly understand this culture. You're a white man, uh, basically. And which is also interesting to have this in this film because I find that to be very uncommon in films of this time. Yes. And I think it's so important that it shows up here because you get the sense that Roberto's interest in the occult is not a genuine spiritual interest. It's sort of about colonialism Yes, in in kind of a subtle way. I mean, you know, he calls him out on it, so it's not that subtle, but you get the sense that Roberto wants to collect collect things and collect people and put them in their sort of little boxes. Like the butterfly, yeah. Exactly. So we found our way back to the butterfly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's a it's a, it's a it it is very it's a very smart film. Like all of these things it really to each other so sylvia reads a letter that she wrote her father when she was in third grade and we learned that her father was a sailor uh and very interesting uh kira lajanese talks about this in house of psychotic women just the uh, how this is one of a couple movies where with an absent father who's a sailor uh the witch that came from the sea is another one and uh, just this kind of idea of like the it's such a idealized male role like oh he's just out in the sea and you know just has no you know sailors historically cannot have actual familial ties cannot 
have a, a wife and children, yeah. right? Yeah, so it, it kind of it shows that he was, you know, a free agent in much the same way that she is a free agent, you know, being a woman who's a scientist. It's also interesting because the father in Pensioni Para is... I don't want to say I don't think he's a sailor. I think he's he's also an absent father because he was a soldier in World War II. Mm. And he, he may be a naval soldier, I don't remember, but it's sort of like she doesn't want to accept that her father is dead. She thinks he's just still kind of off doing war things even though the war is over. So there are some really interesting kind of parallels between the two female protagonists in both of those those Borelli films. Yeah, and an, and an absent father. Um, so she's talking about in the letter to her father how her mother's boyfriend scares her. And we kind of assume that this is the man from the terrible memory from before. And Sylvia looks at these old photos. She cuts the head out from one of the photos of her mom's boyfriend. And all of a sudden, this black cat appears and lunges at her. And she had mentioned also in the letter, um, always wanting a black cat. And she opens the one of the doors in her apartment, and suddenly we're back in this traumatic memory of her mother being assaulted. And so she's reliving that over and over. Uh, the boyfriend who's assaulting her mother gets up in the memory to touch her face, touch Sylvia's face, and we see this flash of child Sylvia cutting his cheek with a knife. My child roommate. Sylvia. Oh, my roommate's go. dogs are like freaking out. I was <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. What were you saying? Child Sylvia is something else. I, I think in a lot of movies, when I, I feel like aside from evil kid movies, children usually aren't shown the way that child Sylvia is. She she's so in a way is so much more mature than adult sylvia in the sense that she's really kind of like conniving and manipulative and becomes quite violent at times and Laura Wendell, who was sort of a teenage Italian cult movie actress, most people know her from Tenebrae when she was a little bit older, but she's just perfect as this kind of sinister, just like little blonde girl who looks so cute and frilly and feminine, but she's basically Satan. Yeah. I mean, she reminds me a lot of, and I, I have to think that maybe this was intentional. She reminds me of the little blonde ghost girl in Baba's Kill Baby Kill. Mm. Like they look, they have that very similar kind of, you know, illustrated Alice in Wonderland type look. And Fellini directed a segment in this great anthology film called Spirits of the Dead that it's all uh, Edgar Allan Poe adaptations. And his contribution is called Toby Dammit. And it has this little girl who basically is like Satan incarnate bouncing a ball drive who drives this actor insane. But all three of these little girls look so similar that 
I feel like there has to be some sort of intentional reference there. Totally. And then later in the 80s, like American films do it with poltergeist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So Sylvia goes back to the antique shop to ask about the vase. And the shop woman says they never had one. (laughs) So she's going crazy. Sylvia and Roberto have dinner and she's upset that he has to go to Cape Town doesn't want she doesn't want to be alone she's kind of reverted back to a a childlike state and sylvia goes to the zoo and which is another kind of you know i keep going back to this thing that you said of like captive or fake nature uh you know she's not going into a forest or anything she's going to a zoo yeah and she sees her weird neighbor mr rossetti and he asks, I mean, he's so good in this. And he asks how her mother died. And she lies and says she doesn't remember. And she has mainly happy memories of her father that she talks about. And Mr. Rossetti takes her photo. Um, and we see while he's her photo is being taken that the man working at the zoo is the same creep who was watching her outside the frame shop. So, oh, and I also forgot to mention earlier with the tennis thing that her, right, her boyfriend, so he's, Roberto, she's on the phone with Roberto and she's telling him that Francesca and Andy went out. But then Roberto gets in the car and he's with Andy. So that's very important because we see that they're they're conspiring against her so we know now that roberto is not a good guy (laughs) maybe like or maybe it's all in her mind but yeah so that that's also important to mention like she's being conspired against so yeah which i think becomes really clear around this point right yeah especially when we see that dude at the zoo and she gets Sylvia gets a strange package. I love the packages in this film. I love the way they're wrapped. They're beautiful. Really beautiful. She gets this package from her super who was like the old man in the car with Andy and Roberto. And in the package is the vase that she wanted from the store. Uh, very disturbing and just as she gets a vase of course perfectly her neighbor brings over this bouquet of yellow roses <laughs> that someone sent to Sylvia and so creepy so creepy Sylvia that night hears these noises around her apartment and she leaves the room and when she comes back into the room all the petals from the rose are have fallen off and she goes to pick up her photo the next day from the frame shop and the photo has completely disappeared. So like every it's all escalating, right? Like just more and more creepy things are happening and she completely freaks out about this photo. She calls Francesca. I just have to take a minute to talk about Francesca's fucking room and her clear (laughs) phone. It's incredible. (laughs) It's it's so good. I mean, I don't know whose apartment I would rather live in more. Right. Yeah. 
I was like, oh my God, I thought Sylvia's was so great, but now Francesca's is, it's just, and she's got all these weird, like, floral wallpaper things going on. Yeah, there's, the more you, and I, I can be very OCD with, like, focusing on a theme and then not being able to let it go, but the more you watch this movie, the more you notice all of the weird artificial nature references. And when there is actual nature, like with the cat who attacks her and the flowers where the petals drop, it's like there's something off about it. It's threatening in some way. So I think there's this really interesting connection between nature and sexuality that reminds me a lot of Alice in Wonderland and sort of this idea that a sexual awakening can turn the world into a frightening surreal place and I think that's something that happens here in a you know very scary way yeah and also this idea of uh restrained nature as akin to a restrained or repressed sexuality like it's not like lush and overtaking it's it's boxed in it's fake um so sylvia's friends this is so funny i don't even like know what the sequence of like how that this happens it just all of a sudden happens sylvia's friends take her to a psychic uh who who is very hot and she has these green nails yeah and she has a flower tattooed on her hand so she has a rose tattoo with thorns on her hand and the psychic is also blind so I also wanted to talk about that and the way that disabled people are often used in horror as like conduits for the supernatural. Uh, I felt that it was important to mention. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that pops up a lot in Italian horror. I mean, you have the sort of blind Emily character in The Beyond – You have the blind piano player in Suspiria, just like off the top of my head. So I think it's something that turns up often and is a very strange kind of minor theme. Because I I, I do think horror movies are often very focused on bodies and certainly showing bodies subjected to violence is a major theme but I I think it also shows you kind of abject bodies not to get too deep into literary theory no it's true though yeah when you I think when you have characters who are in some way disabled it adds to this sense of the uncanny that there's sort of something wrong with these bodies right like yeah and the environment of those worlds is your body is going to be threatened too, sort of. Right. Yeah. And especially with love the psychic here. <laughs> what, were, what were you saying? I just love the psychic here. It's like just when you think it couldn't get weirder. <laughs> yeah. I love her. Yeah. And she's just so beautiful and I love her nails and she, yeah. And I, blind folks especially are in horror used a lot of like oh they can they don't they may not see with their eyes but they see things that other people don't see which is um 
you know, very common in horror and, uh, you know, just quite... I mean, how you might you might feel like it's problematic, like it could be seen as very fetishizing. Um, but I think, sure. yeah, uh, I mean, what I think it's important to like talk about all angles here, and yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I think of it as relating back to the abject, like you were saying, um, and yeah. mortality, and like how your body is a fragile thing that is at risk at all times. Um, yeah, I tend to see it definitely as more of a symbolic thing absolutely than as, than as a specific comment on ableism. Like I, I don't think it's intentionally trying to be insensitive. But I, I do think it is such a strange theme that shows up. I, I also think there are often these characters who are like you said, capable of second sight or have some sort of connection to or affinity with the occult who are often shown to be kind of outside of society, like gypsy characters in a lot of Gothic literature, whether they're actual Romani or not, they're just sort of people who live on the outskirts of society. And so I think for some of these horror films, people who are disabled are outsiders in a similar way yes yeah no that's and it's like a it's the easiest way to show a visual representation of being an outsider um and it's yeah i mean and sylvia is also a kind of outsider so there is this very um kind of sexual connection between her and the psychic when they hold hands um and it's very like sensual and intimate it's so intimate and i find that interesting because she has none of that with roberto like they kiss and stuff but it's very much like he's an aggressor and with the other people that are orbiting her in this film like the psychic and andy there's a very kind of tender sexuality between them yeah yes and uh there's a gorgeous shot of the two women's hands touching each other also with the rose tattoo um which i love so it's so so unusual i mean in the 70s outside of biker movies you don't see a lot of tattooed characters and you especially don't see a lot of tattooed women yeah Yeah. with, with their hands tattooed yes like but psychic is ahead of her time. It's really striking. I kind of want the same tattoo. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. So the psychic asks Sylvia to get this doll that she keeps in her purse because she just knows she has this doll. And uh, it's this doll that Sylvia's dad bought her. She keeps with her. And the psychic with this doll now reads Sylvia's thoughts and she sees her troubled past with her mother's boyfriend and uh, Sylvia kind of, you know, freaks out and stops the session. She continues to feel very haunted. She confronts the ghost of her child self one night in her apartment and she's got this fabulous lavender nightgown on. (laughs) And Mr. Rossetti comes to check in her apartment um 
this is the other thing is like the time starts to get distorted um yes like comes very confusing around this point right where you just don't know what's happening when or where right and he goes to check into her her apartment um and he's she sees blood on mr rossetti's shoe and then the next thing we see mr rossetti is feeding his cats which is where the black cat came from from before and he's feeding them meat that has a a finger with a polished fingernail in it so it's a woman's finger um and we learn that perhaps this finger what we think maybe this finger belongs to francesca who we find out in the next scene was found dead in her bathtub so sylvia is obviously horrified right and runs to roberto is this this is the first death right francesca yes and she she runs to roberto and this is a very strange scene where sylvia and her friends cremate francesca in this very stylish crematorium <laughs> yeah it's such i think this a lot of weird shit goes on in this movie and it's crowded with very unusual locations but from the second half it's just like one scene after another you're like where are these people yeah and how do i go there yes i know the crematorium i was like oh it's like it's like beautiful black marble it's also like I kind of want to live there yeah right i mean yeah that's like how i style my room i was like very interested in that and it, i mean it also just like italians just their sense of this of these things it's just like unparalleled like even their even their like sleazy shitty movies from the 70s are gorgeous i mean i think it's part of what makes so many of these movies amazing not just the horror movies but also like the the crime films from this period there's just so much to look at yes and every shot is just beautiful and like perfectly composed and there's this scene is also going to be a harbinger of the, the, the foreshadowing for the last scene of like everybody surrounding this body um yeah so sylvia oh the other thing is they cremate francesca but the a man passes off the remains to the psychic who is waiting outside in a car so more conspiracies it's so it's so crazy so crazy sylvia gets another strange package which is in a floral box and it's filled with francesca's remains so horrific it really is i mean this is the point in the film the i'll never forget the first time i watched it i just remember thinking what is going on because at that point i had already seen a lot of giallo films a lot of italian horror and usually if you watch a lot of movies in the same genre you recognize patterns and so you think to yourself okay i know where this is going and there's something comforting about it but this movie you're like where is this going what is happening and it <laughs> especially just becomes, right. you're like why did she get the why did she get the ashes right and it 
you know, spoilers, not really resolved. <laughs> and it's just becomes no. like a patchwork of scenes. Like each scene, of, it's like a tableau after tableau after tableau. Like there's really no yeah. linear plot anymore, which kind of also mirrors Sylvia's state, her state of mind. Exactly. And that's something that I really love about this film and a number of the other unhinged women films is that they're not they're sort of the opposite of hollywood movies in the sense that they feel no pressure to resolve plot threads love it and (laughs) i love it so much and they they don't really feel a need to have sort of logical resolutions to things it's just these insane things happen (laughs) And either you're along for the ride or you're not. Totally. Yeah. And Sylvia has this vision again of the woman in black. And this time the woman is waving. She's like decorating the balcony. And she's also got this Italian flag that she's leaning off the balcony. And she's like, you know, (laughs) waving it. So it's some kind of Italian independence celebration. Um And this is when I started to think about, like, maybe I'm reading too deep into it, but I started to think about Possession, the movie Possession, and Mm -hmm. thinking about how a lot of these films are elaborate metaphors for Europe post-World War II. And I was thinking about Italy in particular, and, you know, on the surface, like, this movie is about trauma, it's about childhood trauma, sexual trauma, but in a way, it's also about the trauma of Italy in at post-World War II, and... Yeah, I mean, it's there's little hints of that there, like with the Italian flag. Oh, totally. And I think there are definitely also hints of that with this suggestion of colonialism and this sort of grand conspiracy that we find out involves many more people than you initially maybe thought like the ending is just going to make you i feel like we shouldn't ruin the ending because it will make people's heads explode (laughs) like the first time you see it it just like normally i find twist endings kind of frustrating because they're i think they're really lazy writing but i think this is done so well because perfect yeah it's so much time confusing you and you don't really know where the film is headed and it treats these issues of trauma that we've been talking about it treats them so intelligently and so sensitively but then you find out that that's not the whole point of the plot it's not like here's a movie about some crazy bitch it's way bigger than that in a way that i just i'm like oh every time so good it's yeah it's one of yeah it's up there definitely one of one of the best in this genre um and like the more yeah you can just find new things in it every time uh like just little details like the fact that the box with the remains also has flowers on it which is like the same floral pattern that francesca has in her room like it's pretty much identical um and yeah and that the fact that that's francesca's remains it's just so morbid so sylvia pushes this woman off the balcony like so we're thinking now maybe sylvia murdered her mother 
she goes to the cemetery and she smashes her mother's portrait on the grave, revealing these gigantic beetles inside of it. Very creepy. <laughs> oh, it's such a wonderful moment. And I do think you're right. I think by this point in the film, she has unraveled so much that we're not really getting this sort of standard third act. It's just this series of really eerie but gorgeous sequences. Mm-hmm. Which I love. That, yeah. And I, I also love the way it sort of ties in the theme of the portraits. It's, she accidentally breaks her father's portrait in the beginning, which kicks off this whole chain of events. And by the end is is violently smashing her mother's picture. Yeah, that's a really good point, too. It's a really smart connection. So, yeah. yeah. And I love the Beatles. Like, again, the the insect theme and how they're in they're not taxidermied in a box but they're in an enclosure in the same way it's Uh, so strange it is and they're just they're huge also it's almost like they're not italian beetles they're like these like these giant beetles that you would find in like a hotter climate like africa for example I, i actually I sometimes have a tendency to overthink things, so that might be the case here, but I was wondering if they're African hissing beetles, which are the big sort of like giant beetles that insect collectors keep and breed. Yeah, I but mean, I think you're right. Form of exoticism for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, at home, Sylvia takes the dress out of the box, the same dress that her mother's wearing in her visions, the polka dot dress. What I also love about this film is how much it captures like the fetishism of trauma, like how certain yeah. images and objects, like the vase, the polka dot dress, like get just burned into your brain when you experience a traumatic event and how they they just keep being used over and over again and it also reminds me of don't look now where there's the same shapes colors and objects over and over again that the main character sees yeah there is a lot of that really great visual kind of repetition that be, it it becomes almost like this loop that goes faster and faster as you get towards the end of the film. Yes. Yeah. It's like she, more and more reoccurring. Yeah. Yeah. So she takes this she takes this dress out and her child self enters and says she's come to live with her. And the inner child <laughs> gives her this box also interesting you write the white dress the white party dress the child's party dress is a recurring theme and this box is filled with those these identical white dresses and which is so strange and she so creepy yeah and she takes a bunch of them out and at the bottom of the box is a the dead black cat and you know she kind of holds it tenderly and she says i've always wanted a black cat and it's kind of sad and sweet. Like she's her her child self is really suffering. Um, 
and Child's Talk is also insane. <laughs> yes, it is also insane. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean I feel like this this is one of those movies where it's the theme is sort of when when trying to nurture your inner child goes horribly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Sylvia goes to get the cat taxidermied at that weird taxidermy store. Like you do. <laughs> As you do. And her mom's old boyfriend slash rapist appears from behind the curtain and is like, don't you remember me? And Sylvia... He's so rough. He's disgusting. And Sylvia, like, flees in fear. And she's got this beige dress on which is very Alice in Wonderland-esque dress and she's followed by Andy she goes to her childhood home to relive her memories which is now an abandoned and decrepit house which is quite the symbol yes and the abuser Nicola his name is follows her and chases her through the house and accuses her of murdering her mother and he attacks her and attempts to rape her. Uh, but Sylvia kills him, knocks him out. And Good for her. Right. I, mean, I was like, yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a way, it's such a kind of clever way to show this, I, this sort of symbolic idea of revisiting trauma and kind of breaking the cycle because yeah. she returns to this to the literal site of abuse and confronts her theoretical abuser i mean i think that's what we're supposed to assume he is but instead of being raped this time she murders him yes yeah and you cheer and <laughs> you cheer and you wish that everyone could do the same right and sylvia goes to roberto's she waits in his car and tells him that she killed Nicola. He doesn't believe her, and he drives her to the abandoned house. Nicola's body is not there. Uh, Sylvia hears her child self in the house, and she's happy to hear her child self. She's very connected to her now. And when Roberto goes to touch her, she says, don't touch me, I'm not yours, which I love. It's great. Yeah, and... The child self tells Sylvia that everyone else wants to hurt her. Only Sylvia is good. And she tickles and hugs her child self. And I just find, I just love that. Like she's, I don't know, it's like sort of demented and deranged, but it's also like trust yourself. Like you can trust, you you are allowed to trust your gut. Like everybody else around you is conspiring against you. <laughs> but in a way, I think maybe my interpretation of it is a little different because I find those scenes to be really effective, but super creepy. <laughs> like she has kind of a unhealthy relationship with her inner child where you know, we keep talking about how in these sorts of movies, all the characters that surround the protagonist are in some way not to be trusted. Or in the case of Francesca, they're, they die or disappear. And to me, it also seems like her, her inner child is sort of not to be trusted as well. Mm-hmm. Like, she just gives off this vibe that she has some kind of ulterior motive and you don't know what it is or what she has planned for Sylvia. Right. Which 
No, you learn soon. We learn soon enough. <laughs> yes, yeah. Sylvia dresses up as her mother and tells the ch- the child self to never leave her. So she's also kind of like embodying her mother now, going back and forth between being child Sylvia and being her own mother. Gotta say, I also love the polka dot dress. Just as a side note, like it's so beautiful. It's great. Yeah, and. Sylvia sneaks up on Mr. Rossetti and murders him with a meat cleaver. Um, the child self reads Alice in Wonderland to Sylvia. So, just, you know, really hits you over the head with that analogy. Really <laughs> Roberto comes over and Sylvia, after passionately kissing him, uh, kind of like embodying the sensuality of her mother, she then hits him on the back with the cleaver and kills him, which I cheered at as well. <laughs> I cheer every time I watch this movie and that happens. <laughs> Fuck you, Roberto. And it's also hilarious because she drags his body to a table where the other two murdered men's bodies are, Mr. Rossetti and Nicola. And she's like setting up this deranged tea party. And she says, Roberto is the Mad Hatter. <laughs> Which yeah, it's so good. It really, it really unleashes the Alice in Wonderland theme full force in this sequence in such a great way. But I, I definitely love movies where, for whatever reason, dead people are placed around a table for some sort of party. Like Happy Birthday to Me does the same yes, thing, and it's yeah, so, so good. It is so good because it's so horrifying and it really is. also like pretty funny. Just the way that well, it's funny because like that's a lot of damn effort. Like dead right. people are heavy. <laughs> yeah, and she's just like fully deranged at this point, and we kind of assume. At this point in the movie, if you haven't seen it yet, you're just kind of assuming like she's crazy and that these things are in her head and she's a murderer. Um, And all of a sudden this. uh, Oh, so Sylvia walks up to the roof, which has the decorations on it, reminiscent of the celebration her mother was decorating for when she pushed her off the balcony. And Sylvia's child self pushes her off the roof. So Sylvia commits suicide and tumbles to the ground laughing with her. So it's so creepy. <laughs> it's so creepy. And it's like one of the most original representations of suicide I've ever seen. It definitely is. And Sylvia is all of a sudden, so she falls to the ground. She's she's dead. And this car pulls up and like flashes its lights the creepy man who has been following sylvia is there waiting reading an, a magazine called vigor which cracked me up <laughs> it looks like a gay porn magazine but i think it's like a bodybuilding magazine <laughs> it does and andy and the psychic appear and as does roberto who is not dead unfortunately so at this point like you know, if you haven't seen this movie, turn off this podcast, go watch it, because this ending is crazy. Um, and there's Roberto and Andy and the psychic. They all process down this long corridor in these gray lab coats. And they join this large group of people also in coats, which are like various people that we've seen throughout the movie. 
It's and like every single person we've seen in the movie. Every there. single person. Like, it's a huge conspiracy. And they surround Sylvia's naked corpse, which is laid out in the center on a white table, just like Francesca's body was. Francesca, by the way, is also not dead. And Rossetti and Francesca and Nicola are all there. So Nicola and Rossetti are also not dead. And Roberto cuts open her body and they all proceed to like feral animals remove her organs and eat them in ecstasy dispersing and skulking off into the night and that is the end of this it's film some of the craziest shit i've ever seen it is crazy and i don't get shocked by a lot of things but the ending of this is really shocking <laughs> It's so unexpected because normally in this sort of gaslight type movies where you have a husband or a primary person driving the woman insane, they're revealed, you find out their motivation. Usually it has something to do with trying to steal money or trying to cover up a crime. And in the sort of cult movies, you're beaten over the head with it and you get all of these kind of hints and clues from the very beginning of the film. And he doesn't do either of those. It's like he just takes what could have been a predictable Rosemary's Baby ripoff and goes into the fucking deep end with it in a way that is so original and creative and it just is a. I feel like this is the sort of movie where there's so much packed into it that it's a surprise every time you watch it, or you always will find something new. Yeah, and this ending, I mean, it's just like it's such a dark ending. It's like, hey, guess what? She was right the whole time to be scared, <laughs> and it's. Because you've already made peace with her being the killer and, like, having resolved that in your mind of of her being just crazy. And then we get this just shocking, awful, I mean, beautifully shot, but, yeah, horrific ending. <laughs> and, yeah, that's, that's the perfume of the lady in black. So do you have any closing thoughts about the movie or the ending? Maybe just... I think it's really interesting sort of connecting back to what you were saying earlier about how a lot of these films in very kind of abstruse ways reference Europe after World War II. It's so interesting to me that this is basically a film that's all about kind of making a scapegoat or sacrificial victim out of somebody who's clearly a trauma sufferer. And I I think it says a lot of interesting things about how trauma makes you maybe more easily manipulated. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, everyone in the film takes advantage of her. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It works on so many different levels. But I I do, my my sort of, I guess my final takeaway is really my favorite thing about the film is the very sensitive and nuanced way that it deals with her trauma. It doesn't, it doesn't ever like, yes, she's nuts, 
but it doesn't ever make her out to be this sort of raving hysterical kind of figure that Fennec is in all the colors of the dark. Right. She's very reserved. She is. And like I said, like there's, you kind of hate everybody else and you're kind of like rooting for her. Like definitely are, even though she's crazy, you're like, these people do suck. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like we're we're happy when she kills them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only one she doesn't the only person she doesn't murder, right, is Francesca. Um and yeah, her, you know, her connection to uh, a close female friendship, that is kind of sacred. Like Francesca is it's you know, they say that she died in the bathtub. Um Okay, so thank you so much. This was so great. Um, this was. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I love picking apart the movies with people, other people who enjoy doing that. So, where can people find you on social media if you want them to? Um, I'm just under at Sam Deegan on both Twitter and Instagram, and. I you can also find a lot of my stuff. So I'm I'm also an editor for Diabolique magazine. I have a lot of stuff published from them. Um, my books are all well. The unfortunately, Lost Girls, the Jean Rollin book, is out of print. But the Fritz Long book is on Amazon. And yeah, it's it's not too hard to find me. My name is just a pain in the ass to spell. I'll link it in the show notes. And you, you know <laughs> where you. to find me. Girls Guts Giallo, Instagram and Twitter and patreon.com slash girls guts giallo. And Sam, you must come back on the podcast. Um, I would love to. Great. So I'll see you all next Friday. 